Thank you. Please feel free to uh, stop me if I um, appear to be unintelligible at any stage. I'd just like to acknowledge a, a fairly large uh, list of co-authors here, and um, this work is really led by Tony McMichael, who is a professor uh, at Canberra University, um, who many of you may have seen widely cited in the literature, but also um, other scientific colleagues, uh, including at WHO. Um, here's an outline of what I'm going to say. I'm going to spend a little bit of time just familiarising you with potential pathways of health impact uh, related to climate change. I'm going to give a few examples um, of, of uh, quantitative estimates of health impacts and then um, discuss really in rather broad and non-specific way the, uh, some of the issues of vulnerability and adaptation and finish with some, again, rather broad conclusions. Um, I'd like to be a lot more specific in what I say, but essentially the science that I'm describing is pretty new and quite difficult, and so I think we're going as far as we're able to. So to start then with looking at some pathways, essentially you've covered a lot of these already in, in the previous couple of days, things like water availability, uh, sea level rise, extreme events, and loss of um, ecosystem services, especially food, are all the kind of um, the downstream, if you like, impacts that will ultimately affect human health and well-being. Um, we probably haven't heard very much about communicable disease transmission, but I, that, that's quite a nice um, sort of case study in this area. And finally, of course, when things get really bad, um, when food security is worse, or if there's not enough water, or it gets too hot, um, this leads to social disruption and uh, potentially migration and conflict. So that's a kind of an even more indirect, if you like, um, aspect of climate change impacts. This um, rather complicated slide of Tony McMichael's is really intended to show that climate change is just one of the global environmental changes that are occurring and is, is embedded within a complex system that interacts. Um, but to try to illustrate some of the climate change uh, pathways, there are the relatively familiar direct impacts, things like thermal stress, um, extreme events, sea level rise, fires that we've just heard about, um, particularly impacting on, on urban coastal populations. There are some more indirect impacts on infectious disease risks and uh, biodiversity and ecosystem changes. For example, changes in disease vectors. Effects on freshwater, uh, food yields, etc. And effects on the oceans, also affecting food yields. To try and summarise that a little bit, we can say that there are various human pressures on the environment of which climate change is one, um, leading to a spectrum of ecosystem damage and disruption. And three categories here. I've tried to simplify the health impact category somewhat by saying there are direct impacts, uh, as discussed, heat waves, etc. Ecosystem-mediated impacts, particularly infectious diseases, um, and also effects on food security. And these indirect, deferred, and displaced impacts, particularly um, the, the consequences of livelihood loss and population displacement. And the colour coding there is intended to indicate some degree, to, to, to some degree, the, the extent to which we've 
able to assess these issues quantitatively. So the green ones we've, we're doing relatively well, the orange ones we're, um, we're getting somewhere, and the red ones we've hardly started yet. And there's just a summary of those, um, of those three types of pathway. So for quantitative estimates, um, we're able to make estimates for direct acting climate hazards and some of the ecologically mediated pathways uh, where the climate influence is quite strong, such as for communicable diseases. But we find it difficult where social adaptation is likely to be an important factor um, or where the impacts on social systems are, are dominant. For example, effects on, on food security and uh, population displacement. For some diseases, there are quite well-defined thresholds. And for example, for um, communicable diseases that are sensitive to, to climate, there are often clear temperature thresholds. If you look at the relationship between temperature and uh, the number of cases of salmonella reported in different countries in Europe, for example, you find pretty similar patterns. Not, not identical, but, but similar. And likewise for diarrhea, um, in poor countries especially, there are increases in diarrhea with temperature and also relationships um, with rainfall that are somewhat more complicated, typically with an increase in diarrhea at both low extremes and high extremes of rainfall. And ciguatera is a um, disease caused by eat when you eat toxic fish. Um, and this is quite common in the, in the tropics. The fish become toxic through eating uh, harmful algae. And the development of the algae is temperature related. You, you tend to see an increase in ciguatera where the sea surface temperature in the region is above 29 degrees C. And um, that's also the temperature at which you start to see a lot of coral bleaching. And there may, in fact, be a relationship, a causal factor there. Um, there are also effects, of course, of climate on, on non-communicable diseases. For example, heat waves and mortality, as dramatically illustrated in the European heat wave of 2003. And, of course, individuals have um, physiological temperature thresholds. I mean, if we heat this room up, um, we'll all start to feel ill or drop dead at, at fairly characteristic temperatures. In populations, it's not quite so straightforward because, of course, individual exposure is modulated by social adaptations. Things like building types, um, human behaviour, clothing, um, air conditioning, etc. And so the fact that these relationships are not so fixed makes it, of course, more difficult to project future impacts of climate change with confidence. We can make quite sensible projections about the exposure um, to various factors, as, as has been discussed in some of the other talks. For example, heat waves, flooding, communicable disease, and food security. But it's difficult, relatively difficult, to extrapolate these changes in exposure that are projected um, into estimates of actual disease burden. And that's because, of course, the social responses uh, are strong determinants of the current and future risks. Here's a, um, an example of a disease where we can make relatively confident projections. Um, this map in the green there shows the approximately the current distribution of schistosomiasis, which is a vector-borne disease transmitted by uh, freshwater snails. The, um, the snails don't like being frozen, perhaps not surprisingly. And so that green area approximates to the January um, freezing line. 
at the northern, at the northern end, obviously. The blue area is indicating the likely increase in, in transmission zone as the freezing line moves poleward with um, approximately a two degrees increase in temperature in about 2050. Um, the snails are going to not like being frozen in 2050 uh, in the same as the fact that they don't like being frozen now. So that's, it's a reasonably um, straightforward type of projection to make. Of course, it's not equivalent to saying that people in that area will necessarily get schistosomiasis. It's just saying that the climate is suitable. Here's a result of a, a relatively old study now, but this is all based on um, process-based models, looking at the risk of uh, the population at risk of water shortage in blue, uh, with various uh, increases in temperature up to about three degrees corresponding to uh, unmitigated IS-92A scenario. Um, also shown here are the results for population at risk of hunger in yellow, uh, malaria in red, and uh, coastal flooding in blue. So these, these are process-based models. They are indicating changes in exposure rather than changes in disease risk. Who is, who is most vulnerable to these effects? Well, obviously, people ex exposed to physical hazards, communi communities that are already at the ecological or social limits of adaptation to their current climate. And this often means people in poor countries with a lack of basic infrastructure, um, maybe tenuous water sources, um, and already food insecure, dependent on their local resources. And in terms of uh, communicable disease, um, particularly people on the fringes of the existing areas of transmission are likely to be at particular vulnerable risk. Adaptation um, is very context dependent, and so it's very difficult to make a global assessment. However, there is clearly a danger that we may see some maladaptive responses. For example, using fossil fuel to power air conditioning as a way of reducing heat wave impacts or for desalination plants. And of course, some of these adaptations are already happening on quite a big scale. There are likely to be important tipping points in social systems as well as in physical systems that we have so far been discussing. And we foresee an increase in a danger of the loss of adap adaptive capacity at a global scale with increasing temperature rise. I mean, it's a pretty obvious statement, but I think it still needs to be made. And it may be, in fact, that we now need to start to consider fairly radical global adaptation policies. For example, giving populations the right to migrate from regions where the environment is no longer uh, able to support them. We also need to consider what is going to be optimal at a global scale, and this in involves for example, growing crops where, it is, where crops are best grown, where they grow well, and protecting the ecosystem services such as carbon sinks and food production. We also need to consider the social distribution of resources as, as the planet becomes more stressed by climate change and, and other global issues. So to conclude, climate change we think will increasingly make major public health risks more difficult to control, especially in vulnerable poor countries. We can make some quantitative projections of changes in health-related exposures, but we've got less confidence in the, the resulting disease burden. 
And as an aside, I would just note that, um, of course, people are talking a lot at this conference about mitigation. And I think the um, epidemiologists have got quite a lot to say about the likely health co-benefits or otherwise of mitigation options. We foresee that hunger, starvation, conflict and population movement may well be widespread in a world that has increased by 4 degrees C on average. And we think that these processes and their consequences, rather than the more familiar direct impacts of climate change, are likely to be dominant influences on human health. So from a policy perspective, we clearly need to avoid um, a a 4 degrees C increase in global average temperature, but we nevertheless need to plan our adaptation responses. Public health is one of the prerequisites for sustainable development, and sustainable development in turn is going to be necessary in order for us to successfully uh, mitigate climate change on a global scale. And another, I think, headline conclusion is that protection of public health will require a substantial redistribution of global resources. And here I'm thinking in particular about land, food, water, etc., energy also. Um, in fact, that applies not equally, but it applies already. I mean, the, the, the inequalities in global health are, are already quite stark. Climate change is likely to make those very much worse unless we intervene. Thank you. <laughs>